Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. I'm Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know how huge Daryl Hall is. If you grew up in the 2000s, you probably know too. But if you grew up in between, fall to your knees, millennials. Daryl Hall is a god of R&B. With partner John Oates, Hall and Oates is the biggest selling vocal duo in history. They have seven platinum albums and another six gold ones. They made the Billboard Hot 100 34 times with mega hits turned prom night standards like Man Eater, Rich Girl, You Make My Dreams Come True, and I Can't Go For That. But by the early 90s, Hall and Oates had become a little passé. Too smooth, too perfect, people said. Their time in the wilderness was blissfully short, thanks to a new generation of artists inspired by their sound who sampled or covered Hall and Oates classics, like Two Live Crew. De La Soul. None of that. Tell them what to say, Mace. And the bird and the bee. Hall and Oates' place in the pop canon was now secure. And Hall has a sort of second career on television. In fact, he's recently had two successful TV shows. Legendary rocker Daryl Hall takes on his next project, restoring this 18th century farmhouse. Daryl's restoration overhaul on the DIY network is about his passion for saving historic homes. The other show is called Live from Daryl's House, where big-name musicians join him for jam sessions. It started out as a web series and eventually got picked up on MTV. Let's do Footloose. Yeah, let's do that. So yeah, the intro, um, you want to start it with just drums like... 
I'll start it with like a And then we're in. But you play the The Daryl's house of the title these days is his restaurant and music venue in Pauling, New York, about 70 miles north and a world away from Manhattan. That's where he invited me to sit down and talk. So, learning about your early years, one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, before you go to study music, you're on the streets of Philadelphia singing with groups, correct? Yeah, that's right. How did that happen? Well, it actually was simultaneous with me moving to Philadelphia. I grew up in Pottstown, which is about 40 miles northwest of Philadelphia. And uh, it had its own kind of small town street scene there. So I, I started at a really young age do, doing, you know. Like busking. More like the doo-wop, you know, right. the street corner music. Right. There was no instruments involved, acapella and all that. And uh, it was always very racially integrated, you know, is that whole thing. And uh, then when I went to Philly, I had already been involved in that stuff. And there was this place called Mitten Hall where all everybody hung out. It was like the place where the whole Temple University went. And people used to stand in the corners and sing. It was, it was that's, That kind of stuff was still going on. So I just walked up one day and started singing along with these strangers. And that's how I got into Philadelphia and started... But, but, uh, but at a time when, in my mind, when I think about Philadelphia, then I think about a lot of racial difficulties and move and, you know, historically, not, not for you, I'm saying the city has always had a kind of a racial stratification, it seems like. What was it about you that these people <laughs> welcomed you uh, with open arms I to sing up, with them? I, I grew up in, in a very racially integrated environment. You know, in, in Pottstown, there's a big black community, and my, my parents best friends lived right in the middle of the black neighborhood. So I, as, as a kid, I'm talking like kid, kid for the summer, I would be over there and, and and all my waking hours, really, I would be hanging out with white and black kids together. So the music that I grew up with was that, you know, R&B and soul music. Uh, It was really my baby food, you know, and and it just went that way all through my And your dad, was he musically inclined? He was in a vocal group, sang, he sang like gospel vocal group. And uh, he, uh, I learned a lot about harmony from him. And uh, my mother was a musician. She uh, did other kinds of music, you know, she did like musicals and she was in a band. So it was a very musical environment. Let me just put these cards on the table, which is, you are one of the 10 greatest male vocalists in all of history of rock and roll. I mean, you are, and, and what kills me is like how you've stayed because a lot of these guys have to drop at a key and we interview a lot of my, you know, you name it. And only you and Bono pretty much sound the same now almost first of all i do on stage i do drop it a half a key now ha okay i do so i i admit it but but you know what that's that's cool too it gives me more room to play around up top um but uh you know my voice has changed a lot over the years you listen to those records that i made you know the rich girl and all those kind of songs i'm like a little boy compared to the way i sing now i i have i sort of have the voice now i always wanted to have it's that bigger Masculine voice, you know, and um, yeah. So, but I, so I, I like how my voice has evolved, and I haven't lost any of the stuff that I had. I just, it's just sort of got bigger and wider. Where did you start singing? When did singing begin? My mother for you? was, a, as I said, she was in a band, but she was also a vocal teacher and things like that. And she uh, encouraged you. Yeah, and she, it was sort of always there, and she taught me how to sing. Did they both play instruments? Yeah, my mother played piano, and uh, um, 
I started taking piano lessons around five and uh, took lessons all the way through. And then I, I unfortunately was, uh, got in, uh, was, I won't say I got into, I was forced, forced to play the trombone for a while. <laughs> But uh, that didn't last long. But uh, no, it's it. I've been playing piano since five, and then I started playing guitar. I'm self-taught playing guitar. You taught yourself on the guitar. Yeah. How old were you when you picked up the guitar for the oh, first time? Oh, maybe late teens, early twenties. And when you go, then you go to Temple to study music. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, at first I was going to go. I didn't think there was any money in uh, in in music at all. It didn't even occur to me, uh, and to have a career in music. So I was going to be. I was a. I wanted to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because I was really interested in the life of the mind. And I was up against these. I didn't realize in my naivete that you had to be a doctor to do all yeah, these things. And a medical degree. <laughs> I quit and, that one too. And, and then I was up against all these kids that were like pre-med. And I failed miserably. It was just horrible. I went, this is not for me I had the all. same problem. I was like, I, had to, I have to study chemistry. Just to, I just want to talk to people. Yeah, man. What happened was I did that for a year and then I switched to the Temple Music School. And they, you know, they let me in and... And, uh, and you finished, you graduated. And I finished. Well, I, I quit <laughs> I quit five weeks before graduation because I was a student teacher and I was up, you know, early in the morning, all day doing all that stuff. And then I had a, 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 a bar gig playing, playing music in a bar band at night till two o'clock in the morning. So that didn't work out so well. And the teacher said, you know, you have to choose one or the other. And I thought to myself, do I want to be a music teacher or do I want to be a musician for real? And there was no choice in my head. So I said, okay, see you later. Bye. When you uh, leave Temple, when you leave, when you finish school, mm -hmm. what happens after that? During my time in Temple, as I said, the whole thing was sort of simultaneous. I was going to music school, but I was also hanging out with Tommy Bell. And uh, who is that for people who don't know? Tommy Bell was was the the producer and writer behind oh a, a great number of the Philadelphia sound, the stylistics and the Delphonics and people like that. Um, he was very very influential in the sound of Philadelphia, and he sort of took me under his wing. He was not that much older than me, but but. I would just sit around and listen to him write, and he was an amazing writer. And uh, so I was friendly with him. And then I, I also, I, I had a band that sort of came out of that thing I was talking about in, in Mitten Hall, and we called ourselves the Temp Tones because we were at Temple University. Everybody thought it was the Temptations, but it was because <laughs> we were at Temple. And uh, we did a talent show at the Uptown Theater, which was not that far from the university, uh, from the campus. And it was on what they used to call the Chitlin Circuit. And, you know, every soul group on earth came to the uptown. It was like the Apollo. And uh, I used to hang out there. And uh, just like the Apollo, they had talent shows. And we won the talent show. And James Brown's band was the house band backing us up. That was I was like 18 years old. I'm singing Ooh Baby Baby with James <laughs> Brown's band in back of me. <laughs> and we won the talent show, and the prize was you got to record a record with Gamble and Huff. The songwriters. Songwriter producers who Gamble and Huff and Tommy Bell basically created what the world knows as the sound of Philadelphia. Right. I did a record with Gamble and Huff, and it came out and, it, and went on the charts in WDAS in Philadelphia, the R&B station. And uh, I was doing all this while I was going to school. And so I became part of that whole scene. That's the, I started hanging out at Sigma Sound and with studio musicians. And I, I wanted to be a studio musician. You know, I want to learn things from them. So that's what I was doing during my student years. And in, in the meantime, I met this guy, John Oates, who Where? was in, in Temple University. We he met, was going to Temple? Yeah. We, we, we were Where both, is he from? 
he's from about 15 miles from me in oh, North Wales, Pennsylvania, just northwest of, northwest of uh, Philadelphia. So um, uh, we were both promoting our singles because he, he managed to get a single too on Kenny Gamble's label. Uh, he had a group called The Masters. And we were both promoting our single at this place called the Adelphi Ballroom. And uh, before either one of us went on, uh, it was a gang fight broke out. This whole thing went down. It's typical Philadelphia. And it was, on a, it was on a second floor. And, you know, people started whipping chains out. And, you know, the whole, you know, typical, like I say, typ all too typical of Philadelphia at that time. And uh, we said, okay, time to leave, time to leave. So... I didn't even know the guy. And we both wound up in this little elevator going downstairs. I said, okay, we just dodged that bullet. And, and, and I was looking at him and said, hey, so who are you, you know? And I found out right then that he was also at Temple. I said, oh, man, okay, you know, because I figured kindred spirits here. And uh, we sort of got to know each other that way. Uh, and um, then I needed, I don't, this is a little vague in my mind, but I needed a roommate because I was, I, I wanted to have an apartment in Philly, and he volunteered. So we we got this hovel. We just kept basically. moving together. Yeah, we we moved in and we started sharing apartments, and we did that on and off through school, without any idea that we were going to work together. We we there was no plan, you know. We just both he liked. was your roommate. He was my roommate. <laughs> he yeah, wasn't you your know, partner. He, he was not my partner or anything. And uh, so after after school was over, I became a full-time studio musician at Sigma for the whole Sound of Philadelphia people. And John went to Europe for a little while, came back, had no place to live, and moved in again with me and my new, I guess she was my wife at the time. And uh, we, we renovated this 18th century house right in the center of Philadelphia, lived in it for a while, and that's when we decided... Was that the beginning of that bug for you as well? Yeah, okay. yeah. Good, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, and uh, uh, we decided, okay, we were in close proximity, so we just started playing together and said, well, maybe we should try doing something. Let's share a stage. Let's, uh, you play your songs, I'll play my songs, and we'll do them together. When does songwriting begin for you? When do you decide you want to write songs? Around, I, th I think I wrote a song when I was about 14, and I, I thought, okay, maybe I can write a song. And the, I, I do remember the name of it. It was called I Broke My Own Heart. Now, is that a weird title? <laughs> no, I like it, actually. <laughs> Haven't we all done that? Yes. I know I have. But at 14, what did I know? Well, yeah, you were a little <laughs> advanced. <laughs> that was your first song. That was the first song, I Broke My Own Heart. And when did you write your first song that you recorded? Uh, that was a, that song, Girl, I Love You, with the Temptones. Temptones. And uh, that was... I don't know, how, how was I, 19, I guess? The recording contract you got from winning the, the prize. Yeah, yeah. So when do you and he start to, how do you and he fuse to become what you become? We didn't, it, it, we sort of, it's hard to describe. We, we, were, we were just trying to write, we tried to write songs together, but it was mostly, he would write songs and I would write songs, and we'd, and we'd do them on stage together. And we played at this place called um, World Control Headquarters, which held about 100 people. And we became sort of a fixture there. There was a, another guy. You could do anything you wanted there. I would sit there with my Wurlitzer piano and my mandolin, and John would play acoustic guitar, and we would just tell stories and play songs. It was, it, it, it was sort of in that folky tradition, but it wasn't folk music. It was something else. And uh, we did that, and we, got, we started getting a following doing it. And I remember one of the first things that happened was it was all kids, right, because we were, we were kids. But 
then these older people started coming, what I thought were older people, like 40, 50, you know, and I'm 35. Like, and I remember, and this is the late 60s, and uh, I remember saying to John, you know, this is really strange. Older people like our music too, not just people our own age. Maybe we're doing something different. I actually said that to him. I'll never forget it. And now, of course, it's the reverse. Younger kids like what I do, and the older people have lived with it, right? So it's always been multi-generational and multicultural. There's something I about think people music. like what's good. I, well, I don't know. Whatever it is. It's, I think some of your songs are pretty good. Well, me, me too. <laughs> you can say that. Yeah. People sure. like what's good. So yeah. the multi-generational yeah, thing, it, that happens. Yeah, yeah. I guess it does, for sure. I'm assuming uh, that um, you meet someone who's a producer. Like, is there, is there a producer that comes into your life that takes you to the next level, that helps you make the sound that becomes your sound? Yeah. Who's that? Uh, Arif Martin. The producer, arranger behind Aretha Franklin, and you name it, uh, uh, Donny Hathaway, Aretha Franklin, uh, and, oh man, and on and on and on and on. I can't even tell you his his his. What label was he with? Atlantic Records. Atlantic. And he found you where? Uh, well, that's another long story, but I we will, have time. I'll, I'll try and 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 truncate it. But we were locked in this messed up relationship with a songwriter producer guy in Philadelphia. We were trying to get an album deal and he was failing us miserably. And uh, he was involved with Chapel Music in New York through his catalog. And we went up to New York one time and met this young kid who was only 20 named Tommy Matola, <laughs> two years younger than us. And, and, he, and he said, uh, hey, well, uh, he said, this guy's not doing anything for you. Let me do something for you. He's 20 years old. Right. And uh, we went, sure, why not? So he had connections because he had an office the size of this table in Chapel Music, but he did have uh, contacts. So he sent us out to California to have a chapel rep take us around to various people in California. And we sort of were playing for him, auditioning, basically. And uh, we found this guy, Earl McGrath, who was a really great guy and was in, uh, into sort of developing new talent. And he wanted to sign us immediately which was great. And then he was connected with Ahmed Erdogan and all those people in Atlantic. And he sent us back to Atlantic and we auditioned for Ahmed. And I sat there at a piano and the, the, half the keys were stuck. They wouldn't work. <laughs> so I'm trying. Swell. I, I, you know, it was, this was like my big, my big day. I'm in front of Atlantic Records. Yeah. I couldn't play. Ahmed I, Erdogan. I, I, yeah. I think I had the flu. Too. Somebody spilled molasses yeah. on the piano. <laughs> So I played badly, and, and we sang a couple songs, and uh, I thought, okay, we blew that completely. Two days later, I found out that they had called Errol and said, Errol, we want these guys. They're not going to be on your label. They're going to be on our label. And, and they signed us to Atlantic Records. So then we were off to a start of some sort. We were immediately thrust into, I mean, I completely was thrust into a different group of musicians, all those Atlantic studio musicians. Uh, everybody from Dr. John to uh, Purdy, you know, Ralph McDonald to, you, you name it, the, that, that whole New York R&B scene. And they were all unbelievable musicians. And they're the guys that played on our first records, uh, especially on the Abandoned Luncheonette record. I mean, that's, the musicianship on that record is unbelievable. So I was in that world, in that scene. I mean, Aretha was wandering in and out and Bob Dylan was wandering in and out. I mean, we're just like, what's going on? It's here? a big machinery. 
You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's Atlantic Records back when people were buying records. They choose you if they believe in you and they get their marketing behind you. It's kind of hard to fail, correct? If well, you have some talent. It, well, it wasn't quite like that. Not in those days. It was, it was still a lot freer and looser. And I remember Ahmet saying to me and John, he said, just, just, make, just make music. We'll figure out how to sell it. That's what he said. And uh, he said, don't worry about hits or don't worry about, you know, that, that's. He the, said, don't worry about hits. Yeah, yeah. Literally said that. Don't worry about hits, man. You just, you just do what you. We'll make it a hit. Just do what you do. But they didn't. That was the thing. We were a little strange for the world at that time. We were, I won't say we were ahead of our time. We were out of our time. But so we. Why? T- I don't know. What, what, what was Well, selling? first of all, we were doing a hybrid of Philadelphia soul and other kinds of R&B and mixed with this other eclectic kind of thing that John brought in, you know, like country music and all kinds of other stuff, singer songwriter kind of things. And dance music. You name it. It was hybridized and, and, and also in those days, they had no idea how to label us because we were popular on black radio, not even known on white radio. And the whole idea of musical integration was not ready for the world. I mean, we were, we were pioneers in that. And when did the first hits come? It wasn't until 1975 when we actually went to RCA Records. We left Atlantic and went to RCA. Why? Hmm. I think it was to the extent you can say. I don't no, want to cry. I, I, I mean, I, it was business. I mean, I, th- I think it was mutual. I think that we felt that uh, they didn't. I don't. I don't know why, what we felt. A lot of it has to do with what, how Tommy Mottola felt, you know. Uh, but they. I think that they were saying, okay, well, we don't know if we can sell you guys. Right. And so they try, and then they, they tried, and then uh, uh, yeah, and so we went to RCA, and immediately they did know how to sell us. Listening to my interview with Daryl Hall of Hall and Oates. Another musical hero of mine is David Crosby. When he came by the studio last year, he told me about how hard living influenced his music and landed him in the Texas State Pen. There he went through heroin withdrawal as his fellow convicts looked on. Full range. Went all the way from, I like your music, man, to, uh, Hey, Rockstar, how you doing now? Yeah. Hey, Vern, look over here. Rockstar's throwing up again. Oh. It was Texas. Yeah. They didn't even have AA meetings in the prisons back then. Nothing. You had no help at all. They so you just... crawled out of there. <laughs> it was bitter. You crawled out of there. It was bitter. Yeah. But I woke up. My full interview with David Crosby is in our archives at heresthething.org. I'll return with Daryl Hall after the break.
Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. When we left Daryl Hall's story, it was 1975, and Hall and Oates were with a major label, but had no big hits to show for it. So they left Atlantic for RCA. The die was cast. And then we put out Sarah's Smile on black radio, and it became a top five R&B record in all the black stations in America. And then, then the white stations started playing it. Afterward, baby hair with a woman's eyes. I can feel you watching in the night. All alone with me, I were waiting for the sunlight. When I feel you warm me And when I feel I can't go on You come and hold me It's you and me forever And Sarah smiled was our first hit. And then suddenly things happened. Then Atlantic said, oh, wait a minute, RCA. Okay, they did our work for us. And Atlantic put out She's Gone after that. And She's Gone became a hit immediately after Sarah Smile, a re-release. Soon after that, we had Rich Girl and... You're off. On and on. And you stayed with RCA for how long? We stayed with RCA through, shit, 1987, I think. What was touring for you like back then? Did you enjoy touring? I enjoyed touring, especially because we became popular all over the world very early. Right? I mean, England embraced us, like, from the beginning. 
from 70, I think 74, 75 is when we first started playing in, in England. And so we started doing a lot of touring in Europe. And that, it just, you know, opens up your brain. I and mean, we're kids, right? We had a lot of fun. How did it change you and him? Sex symbolism, rock stardom, it was fame. If you're in your mid to late 20s and, and you're running around the world and people are throwing their whatever at you, yeah. uh, you indulge, that, unless you're crazy. Right. <laughs> you know, I took advantage of, of whatever was uh, the opportunities. Fun. Were. I was having fun, man. I was having fun. You know, the one thing, though, I was never into cocaine. Right. I just didn't. Uh, I have you. a very uh, sensitive nervous system. It doesn't work for me. So do I. But I didn't let that stop. Uh, well, I, I did. Right. It, it just, I didn't like it. So you guys were dancing around coked out of your brains, and I, I was completely you were home sleeping, <laughs> taking a nap. No, I wasn't sleeping. You were sleeping. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll without the drugs. But when you, so you go on tour, do you get sick of it? Do you get sick of the attention? Do you get sick of going on the road? You mean like, now? No, I mean then, meaning when oh, you're then. cresting and everything's and you're becoming this huge musical I, act. I lived at one the, point, you would look at each other and go, I really want to stop for a while. You know, it's funny. I look back on it, and it, it feels like I had more time off than I do now. I don't know why. It, 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 I, I must have. It, I felt like I, I would go out and I would tour and I would go balls to the wall for whatever, a month. And we'd work, you know, every day. There's no days off. Right? Yeah. And, and I would take it all in, everything, you know, stay up all, stay up late, do, you know, do everything you can imagine. And uh, then, then we'd stop. And then we wouldn't be doing anything other than go into a studio, go into a studio or write and prepare to go. Do into you a studio. find that you go on the road more now? Like most acts go on the road more now. Cause that's really the only I'm way a, you can make real money. I, yeah. I mean, no I one's buying any records. I, I tour all the time now. Right. And, uh, I, I, I'm busy, man. I'm, I'm much busier now than I was. In fact, I don't have time to make a record. How's that? I've, I've been trying to make a record, and I have to do it in little dribs and drabs and uh, starts and stops. And uh, it, 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 to try and get into a flow is really, really hard. Was there, a, was there, and I'm not assuming there was, was there a spot in your career where you sat there and you go, this is it, man. We, we, this is the top. That happens very seldom, but it did happen. There was a, a period of a very small period of time in 1985 where we did We Are the World. I played, I reopened the Apollo Theater with The Temptations, uh, Live Aid, and uh, just we'll just use those three things all within a month and a half. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I, I feel like I'm here. I, I'm doing something right now that I know is a significant thing, this is and it. I'm experiencing it. I'm, I'm here now. Be here now. Yes, that's, that's one of the few times it's ever happened to so me. So take me through, just, just in a shorthand, what the tour is like in terms of the evening, the show. Is there a prep you do? Is there, kind of a, is there, is there a vocal thing you do? You don't talk all day? Is something you what drink? I do, what I do is I lay in bed all day. I, I rest. I, I just read all day, hang out, don't do anything. Uh, about, oh, late afternoon, I might power nap. And then I wake up and drink a whole shitload of tea, to, green tea, to, to really wake myself up. Yeah. And it's all this preparation toward this crescendo. Yeah. And then I get to a gig never more than an hour before the show. Put on my makeup, talk to the band, laugh with the band, have a couple drinks, hit the stage, and uh, that's that's the same band all the time. Same band. Same band. Do much rehearsals involved for you guys? Not much. Not much. No, we've, we've been together a long time. We know we really seldom rehearse. Most of the work you do touring now is with John or fifty fifty. 
Uh, no, most of it's with John. Most with John. Yeah, I do do the occasional solo stuff, but no, it's mostly with John these days, right now anyway. And is, is, is scheduling between the two of you, is it, is it easy? You both are in the same kind of groove. Yeah, you know when we, you want to go out? We time do, of year you want to go do, out, time yeah, you don't. Yeah, we, we work this out. We both like the same kind of touring schedule. schedule. We're very, it still works. We're very much the same when it comes to that. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a good relationship, John. And I do my TV show. That's, that's something else. How the hell do you get people to come to a house in upstate New York? You tell me, man. It, it's The people you've had on it's this effing show. It's one of the most gratifying things ever in my life that I could get Smokey Robinson to come to Amenia, New York, up there, which is 20 miles north of here. Take time How off his schedule start? to come and do it. He was one of the first ones. Whose idea was it to do this thing? Mine. And how did it start? I just thought, let's just turn everything upside down. Uh, you know, instead of me... You had a big studio up there. Yeah, and, and every, everything is opposite. In, instead of me going around the, the, the world, I bring the world to me. There is no audience. And all these people would just come. And I, I only had this internet show. It was, it was very small. Nobody knew about it. But these people were coming from all over the world to do this. Then it caught on, and then it became a little easier to book. But still, do you release the recordings of these? Can be, or is only lives because, because otherwise you'd have to what, pay them and pay rights to them? Well, or? one thing people don't realize is how expensive the show is because of clearances. Right. We had such a hard time with that over the years, especially in the beginning. Once we established it, then it was sort of okay. But it was really, really difficult because I was in there, you know, totally innocent. I said, okay, this is promotion for the record companies, yeah. promotion for the artists. Why should they not want this? Yeah. But they were looking at it like we were Napster, you know, the, like we were taking money out of their pockets. And I was like, what money am I taking out of your pocket? I'm helping you. I'm giving you free promotion. But forget about it. We had to deal with lawyers. We had to deal with record people. We had to deal with managers and everybody wanted their thing. And the clearances, it, it became so high cost. It's a very, it's a very hard show to put you on. You haven't cut a record of it. You haven't cut no, any kind no, of No, no, that would be, my God, that would be so no hard stream. to do. Would it really? It, it would be almost impossible because so many people would have to get things. Everybody's publisher would have to get something. Every artist, every label and oh my God. But so I guess my idea that I have for you, I have an idea I want, I want to produce with you. I guess my idea for you isn't going to fly. What would that be? But I want, having seen the Springsteen thing, what a phenomenon that was. And my idea for you was to do at Daryl's house on Broadway. You're on Broadway. Oh. And for one week, each artist comes on and plays a whole week of shows with you. And every week it changes. It's another group. And you do it on Broadway. Well, that would be doable. Okay, here's our Broadway story. We, we've been spending five years. We got to the point where this guy uh, was, was writing a book, uh, the guy that did Rock of Ages, Chris Dorenzo. Somebody's throwing down a shitload of money, and we read Chris's book, and everybody thinks it sucks. So we're back to square one after five years. So I'm ready for, uh, I'm ready for new ideas. You're welcome. Uh, thank you. That is a good idea. You're, you're making a fuck of a lot of work for me, though. <laughs> I know you don't want to work as hard. Do you I, I want to work? You want to flip houses. I, I hate Broadway, man. You got to play all those fucking days and two days and Wednesday or we'll whatever. We'll make it, it is. as easy for you two, as possible. Shows. Oh well, let's see. You let's owe see about the that. public. You owe it to your oh, public. Yeah, man. I owe it. Yeah. On that show, there's some people I see who come there and they really kind of rise to the occasion. Yes. You almost, somebody who I know a little bit, I worked with them years ago, is Kevin Bacon. And I've always had Kevin pegged as somebody who's as cool as a cucumber. And yet even Kevin, when he's singing with his brother, when the morning comes yeah, with yeah. you, you can almost see a piece of Kevin. There's a little glint of him. It's like, I can't believe I'm singing when the morning comes with Daryl Hall. That was a fun show. I mean, Kevin lives near here. And uh, I've known Kevin outside of uh, this stuff. But... Uh, 
there's two different kinds of people. There's brand new people who are looking at me like they have to get over that, you know, and, and be, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're, some of these people just had their first record and <laughs> they can't believe they have to like do this stuff on their feet. They're not used to it. And to see them rise to the occasion blows me away. I just, it, I feel very, uh, uh, paternal about it i mm -hmm. guess that's the right word and then there's the veterans who are used to doing things their own way and used to doing these arrangements they've been doing for 30 years and 40 years kenny loggins well there's there's a perfect one in fact i had to call him out on the show about it <laughs> you can see that <laughs> because he was trying to make it into the like his live show and i said right. no no this is daryl's house this forget it kenny <laughs> Let's do it this way, Kenny. Let's not do it you know, the way you've been doing Change it. Change is a good thing, Kenny. Change is good. Change is good. And it's funny to see the veteran artists adapt to this, like on the spot, their brains are going like this. It's fun. Talk to me about flipping houses or what's your term for it? Restoration? Uh, uh, losing a whole lot of money on houses. <laughs> Tax write-offs. No, I wish. No. My other personality is totally immersed in history. And I grew up in old houses. I grew up with a family of people who worked on old houses and lived in old houses. You know, outside of Philadelphia, it's, you know... Historic. I lived near Valley Forge, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, I grew up in those kind of houses, the 1700s houses and everything. I used to go on job sites with my grandfather, who used to, was a stonemason and a brick person. He used to restore old chimneys and do all that kind of thing and, and actually build houses, too. And so I would watch the construction of these things, and, and I was very, I don't know, I really, really like that world, I, it, because it's, it's not that dissimilar to music in some strange way. It's making something out of nothing. It's, you know, the, the, that whole old saw about architecture is frozen music. What's the first project you did in that regard, other than the apartment with John? Well, no, yeah, that was a whole house. That was the first one. <laughs> the house. That yeah, was the first one. this house was, was taken over by people who, I guess, just, I don't even know what it was. They ruined, they, they basically gutted the house. But it was a house from about 1800. And uh, it was one of those small Philadelphia houses, uh, they call them Father, Son, Holy Ghost houses, because there's three rooms on three floors. It's a very typical small house in Philly. We were faced with the, the shell of this house, so I basically got in there and started renovating it, and we did. We renovated it. I don't know how much John had to do with it, although he, he likes this kind of thing as well. He actually became a general contractor when he built his house. He went to school for it. But he doesn't do historic houses. My thing is, is historic houses. And how many have you done? I've done that one. I've done two in England. So if you're restoring houses in England, you're living over there. Oh, yeah. Well, I live in England as much as I live in America. Do you really? Mm. Outside of London? I live in, in London. The, you live in London. Yeah, Why? I don't know. I just love it? I have family there. What I, family do you have? Well, in? my family is right. partly from England, but also I had a British wife and British kids now. How many kids do you have? I have two. And, and they're in England? One's in London and one was just, uh, was in, in Charleston, South Carolina with me for a while. And she's now moving to LA. Anybody in the music business? The two kids? Both of them. They're both. They Either both, one of them work with you. Yeah. March, my daughter, she's a really good musician. We wrote a song a week ago. You're not married now? No. But wasn't one of your wives, your partner in well, doing was, the restoration she, of the houses? Amanda. She's unfortunately gone. She died almost a year ago. Uh -huh. But uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, she was did a lot of interior design, things like that. So we, we worked on that. She the was a good partner for that. Yeah, kind she of was work. really good about that. Right. Yeah. We, we, th there's a house about three miles from here that, w that we worked on. And now I'm finishing it. So do you own all your publishing? You have all your publishing? No. I, uh, I was very stupid, like many people are uh, over the years. But I, let's just say at the end, I, I own 25% of my publishing. You do? Yeah. Right. 
It's a, that's, a, that's a tough reality for some people, isn't it? To stick I, I was, I was so stupid, I can't believe it. I did, I, but I didn't, you didn't know. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know right. that it meant everything. Right. Right. Yeah. And when you would write songs, you told me that you and he, it was, it was more, he'd do his thing, you'd do your thing. I mean, truthfully, I, I've written the bulk of the songs. Right. Uh, I mean, the, I notice them when I read the list. Uh, yeah, but also it, it, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the the the, the if you look at the songwriting credits, a lot of the, the were very haphazardly attributed. You know, but uh, we did. I mean, uh, that's not to denigrate what we've done together for sure. Do you have any connection now, uh, currently, to Philadelphia and that in that area back there? I have a familial connection. My most of my family. Got there in the early 1700s and never left. There's no Daryl Hall scholarship at the Temple there's no Darryl, School of there's, Music. I, I do have a, a I do have a, a star on Broad Street. <laughs> I got that, and every year John and I do a festival in Philly called Hoagie Nation. It's literally called. <laughs> when is that? What time of year? It, it, Memorial Day weekend. It's a, a region that's defined by its fast food. It's New York without the ego. It's so elegant, and there's so much to do and see there. I love. Yeah, Philadelphia is a very special place. Yeah. Let me just finish with this, which is, why do you think it is that you can sing the way that you can? It has to do with how your brain works. You know, I'm a very spontaneous singer. I'm a very free singer. And uh, You don't know where you're going to go, maybe. I don't know where I'm going to go. No, once, it's, it's non-intellectual. It's, there is no thought involved. It's total spontaneity. I'm just a bird that's opening my mouth and chirping away. And I've been lucky enough to be blessed with the physiology to pull that off. That's, that's really what it's all about. Let me tell you something. If I could sing, I'd want to sing like you. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, all right, bro. Thank you so much for doing yeah, this. Man. That's great. Thank you. Oh, this was good. Yeah. This is great. Man. Thank you to vocalist and songwriter Daryl Hall for inviting me into his club and giving me so much of his time. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.